yeah, it's such a blessing to be able to serve him and one another. And I rejoice to really just to sing together of how awesome our God is. We are so privileged to get to know him and get to, uh, in a sense, represent him. It's a, it's a holy and uh, sobering calling that we have to know God and to speak of him and to walk with him and, and to have, to converse with him. And I mean, how privileged we are. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are so gracious and kind, that you have provided everything for our needs, and you've given us your word, your spirit, you sent Jesus to be our Savior, and Father, I pray that as we read your word today, it would minister to our hearts, that we would hear you, we would hear you speak, we would know um, what the Spirit is saying to the church, and that we would respond, Lord, in obedience. And thank you for my brothers and sisters here today, and for the fellowship that you have made us as you've united us as one in Christ. And I pray that we would just be united in your love, in faith, in our our mouths being governed by the law of kindness, that we would have compassion and mercy, and that we would have great faith to look to you and trust you when, when everything seems crazy and difficult. And thank you that you hear us and answer in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll be in Amos chapter 5 if you'll turn there. As a kid, I enjoyed a game of hide-and-seek, I guess like most kids, you know, in the backyard or in the park or after church, and I always found it fun to find the perfect hiding spot. Like, I I never really thought about it, but I think I preferred to be hiding rather than the seeker. And because being the seeker meant that you had to chase a lot of people. You had to find a lot of people. But I had, I had more fun finding the perfect spot and then being stealthy and just having to avoid one person. It was way easier than having to chase 20 and they've all got a plan and you're just all by yourself. Like I, I kind of liked being on the, the being sought part of it. Um, Jesus, he was sent by the Father to seek and save the lost. Now, there's a difference between someone who's lost and someone who's hiding, right? People who are lost and realize they're lost actually want to be found. They want to be given some direction. And so Jesus seeks those, um, even the hiding among us, he seeks us, that we would be saved. And though he has come to seek and save the lost, we are called to seek him. It, he has not been hidden to us. His, the, the heavens declare his glory. He's spoken to us through his word. And the exhortation to seek God is given hundreds of times in the Bible. I just put that in the search engine and go, wow, there's a lot of times that we're called to seek God. And, and he's not hiding. We don't have to chase him because he's evading us. He, he's not just trying to get close and we try to touch him, you know, tip him and he, he gets away and It's kind of funny for him. That's not how it goes. He wants to be found. He wants to be known. Often we don't know God as we could or walk in his wisdom because we haven't bothered to seek him as if our lives depend on it. Now, does that that description mark our intensity and desperation in seeking God because my life depends on it. It didn't just depend on him when I was first saved, but my life now depends upon him because he is my life. 
In Genesis 4, after the death of Abel and the birth of Seth, it says that men, men began to call upon the name of the Lord. There's like this passage of time, and then people started to cry out to God. And God promised his people in the law in Deuteronomy 4.29. He says, even if you are scattered for your sins, but from there, if you will seek the Lord your God, you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. They didn't need a temple. They didn't need burnt offerings. They didn't need to go down in the mikvah and be ceremonially cleansed to find God. But wherever they were, if they sought the Lord, they would find him when they sought him with their whole heart. So no matter where we are, regardless of our circumstances, where we find ourselves, if we seek the Lord with our heart, we will find him because he wants to be found. It won't be as a return of your effort, like I've put in this effort, I've sought him with all my heart, so then I should receive this. No, it's not on the basis of your effort. But when you seek the Lord with all your heart, he is gracious to be found. He wants to be found by you. The same was true with the idolatrous people in Amos' day that he spoke to in Bethel. They needed to stop seeking other things and turn their heart to seek God. The nation was headed for ruin, but God would save those who sought him. And so relevant for us today. Now, chapter 5, there's two messages in it. One's from verses 1 to 17, the next 18 to 27, and they're a chiastic structure which is kind of a poetic, um, I, I wouldn't have noticed this, but I saw something that said it was chiastic, and I'm like, what does that mean? Um, but it's, it's um, where you have a, a statement, and then it's reflected. Like, failure to prepare is to prepare to fail. See how it's like A, B, and then B, A. It, it, it comes to that form, and that's how this is. Um, it's repeated in reverse order. And the main themes of both messages are exactly the same, that there would be severe judgment, but people could turn. They should seek the Lord. It's not like, oh no, the nation's headed to ruin. No sense in seeking the Lord anymore. No, seek the Lord because there's salvation and hope in him. So Amos 5, verse 1. Hear this word which I take up against you, a lamentation, O house of Israel. The virgin of Israel has fallen. She will rise no more. She lies forsaken on her land. There is no one to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, the city that goes out by a thousand shall have a hundred left, and that which goes out by a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. Amos takes up this lamentation against Israel. They were people that God had betrothed to himself as a husband is betrothed to a bride. He loved her. He chose Israel. But she had prostituted herself to idol idols and um sought refuge amongst the nations, sought their help, followed their gods. And so having departed from God, she found herself alone. She had fallen and there was no one to lift her up. And this, this fallen and rising no more, it means death. She had fallen and would not arise again. This northern kingdom, it once prospered, it would lose 90% of its population because of war and drought and famine and captivity. And God had given the nation a promise. He said, if you follow me, if you keep my commands, if you, so if you keep my Sabbath, if you reverence my sanctuary, if you walk in my ways, if you put away idols, well, then I will bring peace to your land. 
I will give you plentiful harvests and rain in their season. And that was the expectancy of God's people, that they'd receive these good things. And so when drought and famine and warfare started happening, it should have been a trigger that caused them to say, well, have we departed from the Lord? Have we ceased to honor him? Because he had promised miraculous victory in Leviticus 26.8. He says, five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall put 10,000 to flight. Your enemies will fall by the sword before you. So there's this great reversal now that's happened, where instead of five people chasing a hundred, it would be, thousand would be down to a hundred. There would be a reduction of their people. And since they did not keep God's word, they faced judgment. Verse four, for thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel, nor enter Gilgal, nor pass over to Beersheba, for Gilgal shall surely go into captivity, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph and devour it, with no one to quench it in Bethel, you who turn justice to wormwood and lie right, lay righteousness to rest in the earth. They had forsaken the Lord, but there was hope in God if they would seek him. God said, seek me and live. This is a promise that they could lay to heart and walk in. The one who could save them was the one who was destroying them. He had the power of life. He says, I kill and I make alive. He's the one who saves and redeems. Now, the cities that are suggested here, it the cities mentioned, it suggests the people who enshrined the past, that they venerated their forefathers, that they treasured tradition. And these things are all substitutes for seeking God. Um, and we need to be vigilant of this as well, that we can begin to venerate a place or a thing or a person rather than God seeking him. Bethel, remember what happened there? That was where uh, Jacob had slept and he saw that vision. So there was this revelation of heaven and he set up a pillar on his way to Laban's house and he poured oil over it and it says, and he made a covenant with God. He said, if you bring me back safe to this place, you're going to be my God and I'll follow you. Gilgal, that was the place where the reproach of Israel was rolled away, right on the edge of entering into the promised land. They passed through the Jordan and Joshua commanded the leaders from the tribes to take 12 large stones and they hauled them up the bank and they put them in a pile, a monument to show that they, God had brought them over, that he had, they had walked through on dry ground and when their sons and daughters said, what's the meaning of this pile of stones? And he could say, God brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and this is the place where we crossed into this promised land that God has given us. Beersheba, that had connections with the patriarchs of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Genesis 21, 33, it says this, Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and there called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. God appeared to Isaac there and he dug a well, it says. The term from Dan to Beersheba is often used and that means from the north to the south. So these three areas had become idolatrous shrines where people would take a pilgrimage to go out to Bethel and to see the pillar that was raised up. And they would go out to this pile of stones, this monument in Gilgal. They would go to uh, the tamarisk tree that Abraham had planted, or perhaps this well that Isaac had done, and they drank from the well. 
And this was very significant to them. It's like they wanted the blessings that the forefathers had had, and they thought by going to these places and by offering incense and, and sacrifices there, they too could be receivers of these blessings. If you visited the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Israel, so in Jerusalem, you will have seen people uh, kissing the stones and weeping over them and crawling around under these ornate things because perhaps in them they, they feel like they're being blessed in some way. God did not forbid a holiday to Beersheba or Bethel or Gilgal. It wasn't like it was a bad place to go. But they imagined that they would receive a blessing from God if they went to these places. And God said, these things are nothing and would come to nothing. There is no power in Bethel or Gilgal or Beersheba. He says, seek me and live. Don't just seek things for yourself. Don't seek these places. Seek me. That's where life is. Matthew Henry makes a great point in his commentary. He says, God is not sought truly if he be not sought exclusively. God desires to be sought exclusively. No fallback plan. No plan B that you can, well, if, that, if, if I pray and nothing really seems to happen, well, then I can do this and bail myself out. God wants to be exclusively sought. And it's important to know that we can fall into sinful patterns. We can begin to reverence tradition or our routine. And it's a good thing, but we can forget to seek God in doing it, even in reading the Bible, in praying. You can read the Bible and not seek God. You can read it and you were not intentional at all to seek God you were just reading through your chapter and writing down some things or praying. Uh, we can rattle off prayers without seeking to hear from God. We can prepare sermons that can be routine. And, and it's an exercise devoid of seeking the mind of God and just bringing to the passage what you already know or you've heard. So all these things that are good, they don't necessarily include seeking God. But seeking God, that's to be the first thing and these other things flow from it. Because we're seeking God, we're praying. We're in communion with him. Because we're seeking God, we're in his word. Because we're seeking the Lord, we sing songs and we, we hear sermons and we, we share his goodness with others. So my desire is when I hear or you hear a sermon, our motive is because we're seeking God. That's why. And when we sing songs of worship, it's because we're seeking God. Seeking to come into his presence and to praise and honor him. Verse 7, it showed the hypocrisy of the people. They made a show of worship and sacrifice at these holy sites, but they were perverse and ungodly in their conduct at other times. See, God wasn't just looking at them when they came before him or they presented themselves those three times a year. He watched them all the time. And there was an inconsistency in the way they did their business and the way they would clean up and come to him on the Sabbath days. God's word has a way of just striking us to the heart every time if we're willing to sit under that. Amos 5 verse 8, he made the Pleiades and Orion. He turns the shadow of death into mourning and makes the day dark as night. He calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the face of the earth. The Lord is his name. 
He rains ruin upon the strong, so that fury comes upon the fortress. They hate the one who rebukes in the gate, and they abhor the one who speaks uprightly. Therefore, because you tread down the poor and take grain taxes from him, though you have built houses of hewn stone, yet you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink wine from them. For I know your manifold transgressions and your mighty sins, afflicting the just and taking bribes, diverting the poor from justice at the gate. Therefore, the prudent keep silent at that time, for it is an evil time. God's great power is wisdom is seen in the things he's created. We see Pleiades and Orion mentioned here. Pleiades is a cluster of stars. Orion is a constellation. They were known and uh, visible. Um, from earth, known from antiquity, the book of Job refers to them both twice together. Now, some fun facts. The Pleiades, the Japanese call that uh, cluster Subaru. So if you have a Subaru, or you've seen their emblem, what's on it? Stars. So it's pointing out those stars. Uh, I recently learned the Aboriginal Australian calendar, it's made of six seasons. Like, I'm like, what? Not four, six and when Pleiades rises in dawn during May, that's the beginning of winter. Interesting. Uh, the, the three massive stars of Orion's belt, they're easily seen, and they're good navigational aids. They help you find other stars because they're three stars, very bright, all in a line and equidistant from each other. And um, the right shoulder of Orion is Betelgeuse, which is one of the largest stars that we can see, one of the brightest and largest with the naked eye. So these are things that people could see. He says, I made these. I just spoke them into the existence, into existence. And you're bowing down to the works of your hands. You have the glory of God before you. And that's that's not God when you see those heavenly bodies. God just made them. But they were bowing down to things that they dug out of the dirt and thinking that they were receiving some blessing or power from them. It's ironic. And God, into darkness, spoke light. He created the universe. He, he created the solar system. And the, um, what's it called? The water cycle, where it's described here, where you have the water of the sea that's evaporated. And it deposits fresh water on dry land. So it nourishes man and beast and sustains life. They conducted themselves as if the Almighty God was like one of the idols that they served, who was powerless to do anything. It was kind of like they imagined God had gone on a long journey, they were in charge, and there would be no reckoning. Like, he's not coming back, we don't need to worry about him anymore. But, but God knew their hearts. He says, you hate people who rebuke you for sin. You're oppressing the poor by charging taxes on grain. To enrich yourself. You have money to build homes of hewn stone. Now that was a pretty big deal to have a home out of hewn stone. It, it, David thought it was pretty cool to have a house paneled with cedar. But these people were making houses out of hewn stone and God's like, I'm going to see to it that you're not going to dwell in those houses. And these expansive vineyards that you have, I'm going to see that you're not going to even drink the wine from them. A place that was meant, it's usually a place of celebration and rejoicing and, and uh, celebration. It will be a place of mourning and lamentation because you have not sought me. 
And that was because of their manifold transgressions. Manifold means abundant, so many. They had many sins. And they afflicted the just who kept God's laws. They perverted justice. And it says the prudent knew better even than to say anything because it wasn't going to be good for them. They weren't going to listen. It wasn't going to benefit at all. So the words of the oppressed would be ignored, so God speaks. God speaks and his word will stand. And that's something that I love about our God is he, he spoke the universe into existence. The things he says, he will do. And when he says, seek me and live, he, he means it. And it's, it's a reality for us. Amos 5.14, seek good and not evil that you may live. So the Lord God of hosts will be with you as you have spoken. Hate evil, love good, establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord God of hosts will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, the Lord God of hosts, the Lord, says this. There shall be wailing in all streets, and they shall say in all the highways, Alas, alas, they shall call the farmer to mourning, and skillful lamenters to wailing. In all vineyards there shall be wailing, for I will pass through you, says the Lord. God urged everyone to change their ways. He says, seek good, not evil. And it's a good thing for us to, to ask, like, what am I looking for? Am I looking for anything intentional? And I think about that um, quite often. Like, why am I looking for something intentionally, or am I just trying to, like, if I'm looking at a news site or something, what am I looking for? Am I, am I seeking the Lord? Um whether I'm doing that or doing something else. Today, good and evil, where it says seek good and not evil, you'd probably agree that it's based largely upon personal opinion, right? What's good or what's evil. But since God is righteous, he is the authority on what is good and what is evil. And his people had agreed previously to, to walk in his ways, that whatever you say, God, we're going to do. And he held them to that. People who sought the Lord, they would be seeking good because goodness is an attribute of God. They would be with him because he was now with them. They had sought him. He says, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. And so they could be in the presence of God and he would be with them. Whether they were in bond, because this is relevant whether they're in Assyria or Babylon or Jerusalem, it doesn't matter where they are. They could be with the Lord. He can be with them if they would seek him. Those who violated God's laws, they said to one another, God be with you, but God was not with them. And he says, hate evil, love good, establish justice in the gate. God may be gracious to the remnant left. That reminds me a bit of the Ninevites, right? They said, who can tell if God will be gracious and relent from the harm? They had no promise that if they sought him, they would live. But they, he was gracious, right? Because he is gracious. And he preserved them. And we, with the benefit of the new covenant, the gospel, we can look at this checklist and say, they can't do this. To hate the evil and to love the good and establish justice. Nah. That's like a, a, an old dog learning new tricks or a, a, a dog learning a trick only... A, a human being can do, 
Like it's not possible. So they need a new nature. They need a new heart and a new mind. And that's something that we are, benef- we are benefactors of through the gospel, through Jesus. We have a new heart and we have a new mind. We're not relating to God anymore like the children of Israel who, if you do these things, this is the result. There is consequence to sin and also benefits of righteousness. But our way of relating to God is by his grace. Because he's been gracious to us, not because we deserved to find God or deserved to be known by him, but he has loved us with an everlasting love and he has given us a hope that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for us. God was gracious to the Jews under law. He was gracious to them. He's gracious to us. And if they wanted to benefit from his grace, however, changes needed to be made. They needed to stop seeking evil And choose to seek him. And he reveals what would be the end result of their sin. This wailing, lamentation. He had started with a lamentation and now he's finishing. It will be a lamentation. You'll get these skillful lamenters there. Those who survived the attack of the enemies, they would go into captivity. They'd be driven from their homes, filled with grief, regrets. And this, God says, I will pass through you. That's very sobering. You know that song like, Lord, don't pass me by. Or when the Spirit of God passed over the people of Egypt, like passing through, he's like, I'll just be passing through to visit judgment upon you. You're like, God, God, please have mercy. Help us to not just be away from you, so then you must pass through, but cause us to seek you so that you will be with us and preserved. Verse 18, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. For what good is the day of the Lord to you? It will be darkness and not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. Or as though he went into the house, leaned his hand on the wall, and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? Is it not very dark with no brightness in it? The second message, it begins with a pronouncement of woe upon those who desired judgment likely upon their enemies they heard of the 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 uh the atrocities done by the assyrians and and they said lord judge them judge them and he says you who call for judgment don't think that you're getting away from it you're like asking you're making yourself a target when you're crying out for judgment Uh, because the day of the lord is not going to do you any good because you are a prime offender israel It would be a day of death, not light. It would be someone like you're afraid of the dark, you're in a cave, you think you're lighting a candle, but it's a stick of dynamite, and you're holding it right by your face. Bad, right? It's from from out of the frying pan into the fire. Uh, this, This idea of you see the Assyrians as this lion ravaging, you're like, Lord, you know, judge them. And then, but God's the bear that's now chasing you down. Or you think that if God judges the enemy, it will provide some respite and uh, shelter, like going into a house and you lean on the wall, woo, glad that's over, and a snake bites you. He's saying, guys, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. You're calling down judgment on them. You deserve judgment, and it's coming. If you hated the prospect of being attacked by the Syrians, the day of the Lord, it does not do you any favors whatsoever. You're in no position to call down judgment on anyone. 
Have you ever desired the wicked to be held to account by God? You're like, judge them. <laughs> right? <laughs> I have. <laughs> um, but really, when we call down judgment, it's, it's a request to be judged. God is the righteous judge. He knows the secrets of the people's hearts. He knows the depth of their sin and sin that we don't even realize we have. And Paul said it's not his responsibility to judge people outside of the church. He says, um, our, my responsibility is to judge those within. First, judge yourselves, as Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7. But also that within the church, we are to hold another accountable. And as Christians, though we will not be under the wrath of God, um, like in the, the great white throne of judgment, where we're judged only according to our works, we will be at the Bema seat of Christ, which is our life being judged. So we as believers will all be judged for our whole body of work here on earth. And in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul explained, he says, I've built upon the foundation of Christ, and God's going to judge our conduct, our words, and our motives. I'm just fact-checking myself real quick here because, yes, it is one. I was like, is it two Corinthians? No, it's one. God is going to be looking at our conduct and our words and our actions, not just when we think we're appearing before the Lord, when we know we're seen, but all the time. And like metal is melted to burn away those impurities, so our whole life will be tested, the Bible says. Now, when a body is cremated at extreme temperatures, um, there's not much left, two to three kilos of dust. And your height has more to say about how many remains are left rather than width. Uh, because it's the bones that are broken down to dust. And so they have this metal, they have a magnet that takes out if you have like, you've had a surgery, like I've had a staple in my knee or fillings in your teeth, they'll remove all of that. And basically all that's left is dust. So of our lives and of these human bodies, if we hadn't implanted any metal into them, there's really just dust left. Dust we are and to dust we return. But when it comes to heaven, we have this great blessing that our lives on earth count for something. There's a takeaway for us. There is a reward given for the way that um, the Lord was honored through our lives. 1 Corinthians 3.13, it says, Each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work. Of what sort it is? If anyone's work, which he has built on, endures... He will receive a reward. But if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet as through fire. John talked about receiving a full reward. Here we read about loss. That God has this full reward already set aside for us, just like we have eternity waiting for us. And he says, we don't want to lose heart. We don't want to lose our reward. And it's like your whole life's body of work will be put through the fire and we'll see how much it smokes. We'll see how much burns off of it. And some of us, there will just be a few rough cut gems sifting through the rubble and that will be for the glory of the Lord. There are other people that it will require strong angels, and this is my own 
take on it. Uh, I don't believe this is true. This is not theological. I'm just saying the equivalent of you wouldn't be able to carry away what's, what God has wrought through your life by his grace. And he's like, you could offer God a couple of gems or, you know, more than you could carry will come from your life by the grace of God, and you'll be rewarded for that. Now, don't think because of your gifts or your calling that you will escape the judgment of God or receive special treatment. I am not guaranteed gold because God has called me to be a pastor. Um, anyone can have their works burn and suffer loss. I suspect those who, who assume they will be under the judgment of God and emerge unscathed stand the most to lose. I am confident of that. If you think that God can look upon your life and there's not anything that will burn, if, there's not any, if, if it's all pleasing to him in every way, you are deceived. We need to seek the Lord. We need to follow him and say, Lord, I need you because my life depends upon it. It's only by grace any of us stand at all. Any of us are accepted in the beloved. So let's not be cavalier. Yes, God has saved us by grace. He's also called us into good works by his grace. And so let us do them. Let us seek him. Amos 5.21, I hate, I despise your feast days. I do not savor your sacred assemblies. Though you offer me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them, nor will I regard your fattened peace offerings. Take away from me the noise of your songs, for I will not hear the melody of your stringed instruments, but let justice run down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. It's so relevant for us that God is talking to his people. If he was talking to the Philistines or the Amalekites or, you know, people that we think, oh, yeah, they are fit for the fire in a hardened way, he's not. He's talking to his people. He's saying, guys, get rid of these sacrifices. Stop it with the songs. It's just noise to me. It's grating on my ears. It's your hypocrisy. You have this outward show of compliance with me, but your heart is far from me. You're not even seeking me. Unlike your judges, I am not going to be bribed. I'm not going to be bought. I'm not hungry for your sacrifices. God's not needy for their attention. He's not wanting to be entertained. And he's like, should I regard gifts that were stolen? Should I regard anyone who approaches me in false humility? Will I accept the offerings of the unacceptable? No. It's like heavy. It's really heavy what God is saying here. And so the alleged good of what the people did in their giving and their gathering, it would not avert God's attention from the sin that cried out for judgment. He's looking for justice. He's looking for righteousness in their dealings with one another. Right? So he's not focused just on what you bring to me or what you've given. He's saying, how do you treat other people? That's important. That's what matters. Turn with me to Matthew 23, verse 23. Because I want to show, the Lord just impressed upon me that it's not just an Old Testament issue. It's not just a Pharisee issue. But it's also a Christian issue because we're all people. We all have these same issues and tendencies to forget 
to do the right thing and not seek the Lord while you're doing it. Matthew 23, verse 23, Jesus called out the Pharisees. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. The Pharisees were so intent on tithing, and tithe is 10%, like we're going to give 10%, they would count the seeds, they would weigh all of their herbs, and they would make sure that, you know, 10% was given to God. But he's saying, but you have neglected justice and mercy and faith. You trust yourself. You're not trusting me. Love that. Blindly straining at gnats and swallowing camels. You can, you can actually swallow a gnat. I have done it on a couple of occasions. You cannot swallow a camel in one bite. Um, so he's like, guys, you're missing it big time. Anyone can clean up their act on a holy day like we wear clean clothes to a wedding, but God isn't fooled. He sees the hearts. The Pharisees were like the Christians that John called out in 1 John 4.20. He says, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he does not love his brother. If he does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? So he's saying, Christian, you say that you love God, that you're devoted and you, you care about God. But look, there's somebody in your life you hate. How can you say you love me when you're hating on him or her? If you won't show mercy to your enemies, how can you say you love me? Like, this is a reality check God is giving the church. And God's looking at our whole body of work, not just when we bow our heads or we sing or read the Bible. And I pray that the sober implications of this will impact us, not just with the feeling like a twinge of guilt, but really brought to remembrance every day. That we can be, we can say, yes, I am, I love God, and I have committed to follow Jesus, but I can nitpick the faults of others without mercy and grace and think that I've received the mercy and grace of God, but I'm not walking in it. So, if I've received it, it's something I should be walking in. So if I'm not loving people, if I am um, at odds with people, and I, I have no desire for restoration of that relationship, then there's something wrong in my heart that I need to confess. I need to seek the Lord. Now, here's a hard fact for you. There have been times where you and I have prayed, we have sung praises, we have given of our time and our resources, we have served in the church, and God in his long suffering, he allowed us to do so without immediate judgment for our hypocrisy and that was our only reward. We deserved death for that. But God, he is long suffering, he is patient. He he brings us back to saying, "Guys, seek me and live." All these things, let's, let's acknowledge that we haven't been walking with God. Let's acknowledge that we haven't been loving towards that person. Let's acknowledge those things. We don't need to be saddled with guilt and, and regrets. Seek God and live. 
So there's this new way that's been opened to us through Jesus Christ that we can seek God and live regardless of how we've done, what we've done or the hypocrisy that's been there, but we need to confess it and repent. God told the church in Laodicea, he says, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. I will vomit you out because you are lukewarm. I wish you were hot or cold, but you're neither. So... This is what he says. And the thing was, they, were, they believed they were acceptable in themselves. He says, you don't realize that you're blind and naked and wretched and miserable. You think you're all that, but you're not. I counsel you in Revelation 3.19, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Now, my, my intent is not to take aim at anyone. I feel like I really... Uh, got smacked around by this in a good way. But to show how relevant and pervasive this issue is, that was in Amos's day, that was in the Pharisees, that was the people that, that John was speaking to in 1 John, and also in the church of Laodicea. All the way through, there's this common thread of human behavior of we stop seeking God at some point, and we think that we are sufficient ourselves to become proud of our humility. It calls for judgment, so I ought to repent, seek God, and live. Amos 5.25, Did you offer me sacrifices and offerings in the wilderness forty years, O house of Israel? You also carried Sikuth, your king, and Cheon, your idols, the star of your gods, which you made for yourselves. Therefore I will send you into captivity beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. This passage is actually quoted of this long-standing, pervasive idolatry by Stephen to the Sanhedrin in Acts. And he's saying, from the beginning of the history of Israel, your conduct has been littered with idolatry. Right when you came out of Egypt, you brought gods with you, and you made them for yourselves. God was their sovereign king who carried them out, and yet they carried these little shrines to their idols they built this tabernacle that they carried around but they also carried their idols with them i don't think moses was aware of uh, all those little idols that were out there but their addiction to idolatry it only multiplied and when they came into the land of promise before the death of joshua he said guys get rid of those idols that your parents carried out of egypt and that you've been lugging around through the wilderness for 40 years get rid of them but they didn't. And, and now in, in the northern kingdom, we're seeing this uh, total departure from the Lord and idolatry. And understand that it was mixed with like, we're offering sacrifices to God, but they were doing it at the high places. So they were doing it in a uh, disobedient way. So for their idolatry, God would send them into captivity. Now, the God of hosts, the one who created Pleiades and Orion, he says to all people today, seek me and live. In a game of hide-and-go-seek, it's really important to know if you are the seeker or the one who is hiding. Now, that would be a pretty lame game if the one who's supposed to be looking is actually hiding. 
Now, I think this has probably happened before. You know, you didn't communicate too well, and it was like whoever was tipped last, they have to do it. And, but they have this great hiding spot. And so you go, and you're hiding, you're like, <laughs> waiting. And it's like just nothing's happening. It's quiet. And then you realize the one who's supposed to be looking for you is hiding too. So I can just imagine in my mind kids starting to kind of look out behind the tree and start, you know, what's going on? You kind of, what kind of game is this? This is pretty lame. But the reality is if you're hiding when you're supposed to be seeking, you are not going to find anyone. God has found us out, believers. He knows us. He knows how we are. He knows what we think. He knows how we operate. He knows our nature. It's for us now to seek him and live. We need to be doing the seeking. We can be lost, but let us seek the Lord. Isn't that awesome? That When you're lost, you can seek the right way. How do I get home from here? Well, seek the Lord and live. You don't need to be able, you don't have to find out even where you went off track to seek the Lord because there's life in him. We'll never experience that abundant and victorious and fruitful life that God intends until we make seeking him a daily activity, a priority, not to just tick it off a list and like, okay, I'm done with that now. We can do that, right? We have our chores. You're like, all right, I got to get the, lo- the washing done. I need to get that landscaping stuff done. I need to make that phone call. And then we're like, done. And we can do that with seeking God. All right, let's pray. Okay, done. Moving on. Don't move on from him. Seek the Lord and live. That word that he said, but from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. It's because God loves us, he chastens us. It's because he loves us, he reminds us. If you feel guilty, we're guilty. We're all guilty. But he has made a way for us to have life through him. So instead of lamenting our lostness, or that we've been hiding when we should have been seeking, let's seek the Lord now. Let's seek him and live. And this study has really shown me my need to seek God and how thankful I am for his grace and mercy. Because without him, what can we do? Historically, I'll say a great deal of what I imagined made me acceptable for God. It put me under judgment for my hypocrisy. The things that I thought were so good that God would look upon and reward, it was actually a call for judgment because I wasn't sincere. So are you willing to admit today your, your need to seek the Lord and live? And I want to give you an opportunity to respond to that. Um, if you want to seek the Lord, I'll just ask you to stand and I'll pray. And uh, of course you don't. You just, I want to seek the Lord and I'm standing. So if you stand with me, that's cool. Um, let's stand before the Lord. No obligation, but if you sense a need to, to seek the Lord, I just encourage you to stand. Let's respond. Lord God in heaven, uh, what can we say? Forgive us when we have not sought you, when we've been hiding out instead of seeking you. 
Lord, help us to, to seek you. Teach us what that looks like. Teach us what it means that in every part of our day, we can be seeking you. We can be abiding in your presence. And I pray for my brothers and sisters today, Lord, that you would uh, reveal yourself to them in your power, in your love, in your grace, that we would come before you, Lord, humbly, confessing our sin uh, in, our, in our desperate need, that without you, Lord, we can do nothing. And so I pray, Lord, that we would respond not just by standing before you now, but by seeking you today and every day, that uh, our lives depend upon you. You are our life. And I pray that you would help us, Lord, to walk in your ways, to follow hard after you, to put away hypocrisy and deceit and the things that we don't even see, Lord. We, we're not even aware of them. I pray that you would point them out. Make us very sensitive, Lord, to your spirit so that we would have a conscience that's not just burdened, but that's repentant and that desires your will to be done in and through our lives. And I thank you, Lord, for your love and for your grace and that you have not forsaken us and that you cry out to us and you say, seek me and live. And I pray we would experience that abundant and marvelous life that you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Could I have the worship team come up, please, and lead us in a song? <laughs>